Welcome to the BJ Psych International Podcast. In this episode... It may be that consciousness, which we value so much, and which we see as the be-all and end-all, is actually something which inhibits us from being ourselves. Professor Charles Foster discusses Who are you today? Problems of identity in psychiatry. Hi there, my name is Sachin. I'm a general adult psychiatrist based in London. (laughs) And I'm Hammy. I'm an F2 doctor who will soon be commencing work in core training for psychiatry in London. At the time of recording, anyway. By the time this goes out, you may well be a consultant psychiatrist. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, well Sachin, I hope it doesn't take you that long to uh, edit it. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are we discussing today, Hammy? Well, today we're going to be talking about an article in the BJ Psych International titled Who Are You Today? Problems of Identity in Psychiatry. And this is an article by Professor Charles Foster who is on the Faculty of Law at the University of Oxford. And this article tackles the very concept of identity and what defines who someone is. There's a quote in the article where one psychiatrist says their job is to put the patient back into their right mind. And what is the right mind? (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah, what is the right mind? And the, the article explores that with several philosophical thought experiments and case examples, cases where it's not so clear, such as when one is in a vegetative state. Tell me about the vegetative state so we can understand this interview that's coming up. So a vegetative state differs from a coma, because in a coma you have both no consciousness and no awareness. So it's quite simply, to a layman you could say it's like someone's asleep for a long time, though of course it's not quite the same as the brain going through sleep cycles. But what is confusing is when an individual is in a vegetative state, where in the kind of medical sense, they have consciousness, their eyes are open. So they have arousal. Yeah, they have arousal, their eyes are open. They might exhibit reflexes, such as if you put something in their hand, they might grasp it as a basic reflex. And they can go through sleep-wake cycles, but they have no awareness of any kind that's observed. So if you were to try and engage them in conversation, there wouldn't be any form of response, to put it simply. And often the term persistent vegetative state is used. I did a bit of reading because I wanted to make sure I was getting this right. (laughs) Well, it's a very unfair question for me to ask you what persistent vegetative state is, by the way, because I understand it's not that well defined anyway, but carry on. (laughs) No, no. And maybe that's why I don't recall there being any teaching on it in medical school, at least not in the clinical context, though I do think often it is favoured in ethics-based teaching. But the term persistent vegetative state is apparently discouraged in the UK in favour of two more precisely defined terms, which are continuous vegetative state, which is a term used for patients in a vegetative state for more than four weeks, or a permanent vegetative state, which as a diagnosis can be made if an individual after exhaustive testing and 12 months of observation is found to remain in a vegetative state and it is deemed impossible that the condition will ever improve and persistent is used more in the US whereas in the UK 
continuous vegetative state is used more often. What happens to someone who is in permanent vegetative state? Well, there was a landmark legal case, which is often referred to in cases of persistent vegetative state in the UK. And this was the case in 1993 of Tony Bland, a gentleman who unfortunately sustained catastrophic anoxic brain injury in the 1989 Hillsborough disaster. It was this case that set legal precedent for withdrawal of clinically assisted nutrition and hydration in cases of patients in a permanent vegetative state. From my understanding, it is no longer the case that an application to the court of protection is required before nutrition and hydration can be withdrawn or withheld from patients in a permanent vegetative state. But, and again, I'm a clinician, I'm in no shape or form a lawyer, uh, I do appreciate that this is uh, somewhat of a legal grey area and there are advocates on both sides with regards to what is the best way forward and it's important to emphasize that it is on an individual basis there shouldn't be a sort of blanket stance so the ethical question is someone who is permanently in a state of no awareness basically should they be allowed to die or not it can be boiled down to that yes Sachin. And therefore, it raises questions about the autonomy of that individual, the quality of life being experienced, the fair and just allocation of resources, and also the wishes of family members of the individual in question and professional responsibilities of all those involved in the care of said individual. Interesting. And obviously, this paper doesn't attempt to answer that either, but it does pose the question of whatever you wanted for yourself before you entered that state. Say you, Hammy, wrote a advanced declaration saying, yes, I want to die if I'm ever in such a state. Is that the same person who is now in that state? And can we any longer listen to what you wanted? It's a philosophical question and it's certainly a very, I don't want to say controversial, I'll say it's a, it's a spicy question um, <laughs> because... We, of course, place high value on advanced directives. We appreciate that there's nothing better than being able to hear from a patient as recently as possible regarding their stance and feelings towards the way they'd like to be treated. If we can't take advanced directives at face value, then what do we have, <laughs> I guess? <laughs> like in situations where all we have to go off of is the advanced directive and there's no lasting power of attorney, it's rare circumstances where you have literally only the advanced directive to go off of. Often you can involve family members in discussions. It's the clinician's decision ultimately. But if one were in a situation where the advanced directive is all we have to go off of, it's scary to have that fundamental trust in the advanced directive as a concept, as a system, to have that trust questioned, isn't it? Mm. Let me pose a hypothetical before we go into the interview, and it's completely a sci-fi scenario, right? Hami, say you wake up in hospital with no memory at all, complete amnesia, and you're told that you have, I won't even define the illness, right? Just an illness. And you're told that you have to take 
a medication for that illness and you don't want to but they produce a piece of paper which says no no one year ago because you come in and out of hospital all the time actually you wrote and signed this piece of paper which said if i'm ever unwell with this illness i want to have this medication because it makes me well you don't recognize that you've ever written this and you still don't want to take the medication. <laughs> Doesn't that feel like you're being taken hostage by someone else that isn't you? Well, I have a few things to say. The first thing is that sounds like the plot from a K-drama. But the second thing is, at the same time, is that not the experience of countless individuals with delirium? Well, not the exact experience. You know, they haven't written on a, a piece of paper that they want specific treatment. But perhaps on admission, they may have been admitted for elective hip replacement and they consented to the procedure, to the post-operative analgesia. They completely understand what they were getting into. But time and time again, it's very common for older adults and, well, not just older adults, but more commonly older adults to have post-operative delirium. And the amount of disorientation and confusion they experience varies, but I have no doubt that many individuals, and I have seen individuals with absolutely no appreciation for where they are, why they require treatment, and no wish to be cooperative with regards to treatment for their ongoing care needs. And that must be very distressing. And often they do say, let me out, I'm being kept a prisoner. Mm. It would feel like you're being kept hostage, that you are being kept a prisoner. Well, not just kept a prisoner in the hospital, but by your former decision. Right. And I think it might be difficult. Perhaps a state of delirium would be different from the scenario you suggest in that in a state of delirium, you probably don't have your full cognitive faculties to be able to appreciate that. Often, if you do tell someone who's delirious that they previously agreed with something, they almost just kind of disregard it or just disagree. But were one faced with perhaps a recording of themselves having previously said something or a written message uh, like the film Memento, <laughs> don't trust this man's lies. <laughs> that probably would be quite distressing as well and perhaps it might trigger some sort of existential crisis on a different scale. And I think this is an example that probably might be used by many individuals commonly, but the scenario of someone becoming blackout drunk and doing or saying something that would be considered out of character for them normally. Right. Um, like, Hami, last night you actually said you'd give me £500. I know you can't remember it, but you did say so. It's it's funny that, isn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I don't remember it, so it doesn't count, you see. Um, but I don't know how that, you know, I'm sure that's an experience, perhaps a more common experience that many individuals can identify with. And it can be distressing to have this black hole in your memory where if you did act out of character for how you normally view yourself with regards to your own social beliefs, political beliefs, just in any way that's out of keeping for how you identify yourself. And well, what you might say is that wasn't me. Yeah. <laughs> so ultimately, really, delirium is probably going to be the most common situation, at least that I as a junior doctor would encounter where individuals at a specific moment in time disagree with their previous decisions and lack an understanding and an awareness of that and could, to put it simply, be seen as a different person, even though it's the same Mr. Smith 
it's same body, same brain, same clothes, but he is almost unrecognizable yeah. in his behavior and, and values from how he was two days prior. And to himself, right? Like the former decision is completely alien to him. Right. And there's right. literature on delirium that suggests that, yes, many people don't remember the period of delirium in hospital, but there are also many individuals who do remember, but are really just quite embarrassed because of how distressing and not in keeping it was with their normal values that many of them feel incredibly shocked and ashamed of how they treated healthcare staff or their own family members or other patients during that period uh, it can be distressing to be forced to look in the face the concept and idea that who we are as a person isn't immutable well let's not answer the question of is it the same person or not and instead speak to someone who may have thought about it a little bit longer than we have just a little bit so here is professor charles foster to discuss his article my name is charles foster i have a number of different hats so for a lot of my time i'm an academic at the university of oxford in the faculty of law i do medical ethics and law I'm a fellow of Green Templeton College and the University of Oxford, and I'm also a practicing barrister, again, practicing generally in the field of medical law, which covers a multitude of legal sins. But um, a fair proportion of the stuff I do is concerned with psychiatric business of various sorts. And academically, I'm particularly interested in cases of identity changing disease and how the law should deal with those issues. The article is just fascinating to me, and it starts off by putting the psychiatrist to task, basically, in that this hypothetical psychiatrist is asked, you know, why they do what they do or what their aim is. And they say that they're trying to put someone in their right mind, and presumably meaning that the mind has been altered by disease or brain injury or a functional psychiatric illness presuming that there is not an organic cause underlying that as well. What would be your issue with that claim? My issue with the claim is not that it's wrong, but that clinicians and lawyers don't tend to examine sufficiently rigorously, if they examine it at all, uh, the presumptions that lie beneath it. And the presumption that tends to lie beneath certainly the lawyer's way of looking at these things is that there is always whatever organic disease or traumatic injury does to a person there is still always an inalienable core of a person that persists despite anything that's done to their brain now that may or may not be true but if it is true it's not completely obvious that it's true and it needs to be examined now before we get on to the self and the immutability of the self we do talk about the right mind and what that means. And your analogy was to a surgeon who's fixing a broken tibia and putting it back to its right self. Now, would that mean putting a tibia back to how it previously was or back to the universal concept of what a tibia should be? It'll be both of those things. So we have an idea about what a normal tibia consists in, and it's regards the surgeon's job to restore an anatomically normal tibia, which is a tibia which conforms both to our ideas, our normative ideas, if you want, of what a tibia should be like, and hopefully 
that normative idea of what a tibia will be like will be the tibia of the individual person, uh, which can be restored to its pre-accident state. Because when you get to the mind then, there is this idea that the previous mind may not fit societal standards of what a normal mind is. And then are we trying to get our patients to a universal concept of a right mind or to a baseline? Well, that's the question that I want to encourage clinicians to ask. Um, So in lots of your clinical examinations, you are tacitly assuming that there is such a thing as a right mind. And you can see it in the questions that you ask your patients and the answers that you record. You ask yourself the question, um, is the patient appropriately dressed? Well, what is appropriately dressed? By what standard? You have in your mind an idea of what appropriate dress means. Um, You comment in your clinical notes about whether the pattern of a patient's speech is normal and appropriate. You have a normative assumption about what speech should be. Now, I'm not saying that those assumptions are wrong. I'm just saying that you need to look at what you're asking yourself and the significance of what you're asking yourself when you conduct your clinical examinations in that way. Partly that does acknowledge that there can be psychopathology. So, yes, we comment on is the state of dress normal, but there seems to be some agreement that there is an abnormal or like to pick a very blatant example, say someone is experiencing a thought echo, like everything that they think they hear back spoken that seems obviously abnormal or atypical. But even keeping that in mind, who is defining what is normal? Is it the psychiatrist? Is it the patient who's coming in voluntarily or is it based on a societal standard it may be one or more of all those things and probably as you say because the patient is likely to be there voluntarily they have decided that their conduct or their feelings about the way that they are generally are not the way that they want to be and probably in saying that they are saying at some level that I don't want to be like this because it doesn't conform to some sort of societal norm, a societal norm that I've adopted. And certainly the psychiatrist, when she sits down with the patient, is probably going to agree with the patient that that sort of presentation is not normal. And probably in that agreement is a tacit assumption that the societal norm is in some way desirable. So a psychiatrist would expect to have a rough ride at the GMC if she perpetuated a schizoid episode. And what would be the reason for the GMC's censor of that psychiatrist? Philosophically, it would probably be something along the lines of schizoid episodes are things that we ought to excise from the patient, that we ought to excise from society. That's not the way that we should do things. That's not the way that human beings really are. And there must be some standard which we hold as to what's not acceptable. So your paper raises that people can change from their baselines based on any number of things. Like the person you meet will depend on what side of the bed they got out of. It will depend on if they've had a glass of wine or not, if they've slept well or not. But for some reason, psychiatrists get to dictate the attributes which shouldn't change and the degree to which they shouldn't change they do 
and they are aided and abetted in that dictatorial view of the self by the law. So, for example, if you look at the Mental Capacity Act, you see all the time a reference to the person. And the person in the Mental Capacity Act, as in the Mental Health Act, is something that persists, whatever the disorder of body and or mind that puts them under the umbrella of the Mental Capacity Act. You're speaking to this like bedrock assumption that the mind is immutable and that the identity is immutable. Yeah, so so in most psychiatric discourse that I see, mind effectively becomes a synonym for soul. Mm. And soul is regarded as a completely immutable thing. And the worrying setup there is that if the mind is not immutable, and that seems reasonable to say because we do change day to day and over longer periods of time. And the person you're speaking to today is not the same as the person who was here a decade ago. If we assume that the mind is mutable, and then we'd say that disease is something that interferes with the immutable state of the mind, then psychiatrists have a lot of power dealing with people who have changed in deciding that they have disease and then being able to exert or override their will terrifying power and um, power which of course is backed up in a lot of situations by the law so underlying all this is an old philosophical debate about authenticity so you will remember polonius says to thine own self be true and lots of commentators about this have thought that the notion of authenticity which is embodied in that comment probably goes back just to the 16th century and then the Romantics got hold of the idea and saw authenticity as not desirable simply because it meant that you were sincere in your presentation, not trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes, but because acting in accordance with what you truly were was itself a good, and also because what was inside you was the best guide to the way that you as a human being could thrive. And that, of course, was a point of view which was opposed by the existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre, for instance, who thought that there is no self in there other than the self which you make for yourself. And that has become translated into the philosophical world into a debate between self-discovery, which is the romantic idea of how we should approach the business of living, and self-authorship. So autonomy, we're entirely self-made. We are blank slates. We can write our own stories. So those are the two opposing concepts which all the time, it would seem to me, are hovering around in your consultation rooms. And I would have thought that you have to decide which of those accounts you think is the one that you should be pressing pharmacologically or in terms of counselling. This all speaks to then how we treat people, which is that we particularly or only within cases of diminished capacity or lack of capacities that we want to treat them in their best interests. And that depends on their identity and what they want. But the question is, who is they that we're treating at that time? Exactly. Yeah. And the law seems to assume that there is no difficulty about identifying the entity whose best interests you should be taking into account. I think that that is not 
an easy question to answer. You set it up quite well in terms of describing it as, again, someone who lacks capacity because of, say, a, a brain injury or a psychiatric illness, that we're using their best interest and using substituted judgment, basically what they would have wanted but what they would have wanted is a previous person. And you call it like treating a ghost, presuming a continuity between those two states. And I sometimes think about this, like say you woke up one day with no memory of your previous life and you're being treated in accordance with what your previous life was, how you would feel about that. Because it would feel as though you're being treated as a different person. Yeah, the role of memory in the constitution of the self is a really mysterious and important one. You'll remember that Oliver Sacks talks about Jimmy G, who comes to see him in 1975. Jimmy G had been in the US Navy in 1945 and had drunk heavily, suffered from Korsakoff syndrome, and he was stuck in 1945. He thought that the then president was still the president. He was shocked when he was asked by Sachs to look into the mirror and saw not the face of a young seaman, but the elderly grizzled face of a much older man. So who was the patient who was in front of Oliver Sachs? Was it the young seaman or was it the man who had the chronological age of his patient? Mm. A really difficult philosophical question and a almost impossibly difficult clinical one, I thought. Now, these situations seem to only have practical impact, I guess, when there is a lack of capacity, right? Because, say, someone has changed in a dramatic fashion because of illness, but they retain capacity, then we have no problem treating them as their current selves, right? Well, I'm not sure that's right. I mean, I, I agree that these problems are at their most acute when a patient has lost capacity. They are dramatically present when a patient is in a permanent vegetative state. But if you look at the way that patients themselves view the way that psychiatric interventions affect their view of the self, you see even when they are autonomous uh, problems. So, there's a really good paper by Erler and Hope in 2014. It's called Mental Order and the Concept of Authenticity. And they identify five positions that people with mental disorder have taken about their own authenticity. So one view articulated is that what the authentic self is, is the well self. And aspects of the self that are part of mental disorder are inauthentic. So I guess that you see that classically in anorexia, where patients would talk about having two people inside them. So on that view, if medication can treat the mental disorder successfully, then it can help to reveal the authentic self. So that's an example of one instance where a capacitous patient might worry about authenticity. Other autonomous patients might worry that psychological characteristics that result from taking medication are not authentic. So I guess the flattening out of one's mood, which happens with lithium, might be a good example. So it might help your depression, but it also might stop you 
writing poetry. Or another view might be that the mental disorder is just part of your unified, authentic self. Or another view might be that there are two selves which are both equally authentic, and the unhealthy one is just separate in some way from the healthy parts. Or, and I guess this is the predominant one in psychiatric practice. Look, um, there is no issue of authenticity. You are what you are. The only consideration relevant is what leads to a better life as viewed subjectively. And I suspect that most practicing psychiatrists are pushed to that view, not by any philosophical commitment to it, but simply because you don't have the time in the course of your busy clinical lives to inquire more deeply into the underpinnings of what you're doing. Now, you mentioned persistent vegetative state. So basically a retention of arousal, but lack of awareness. And we'll put aside, because you've written extensively about how it's a state that is difficult to medically, well, A, define, but B, evidence. But let's presume that the state exists and has been shown to be present in a patient. You have this case study of someone who is in a vegetative state and the decision is being made with regards to life prolonging treatment. And the argument against withdrawing treatment, and there is a baseline presumption of right to life, and that baseline assumption is that the patient's best interest is to live. But the argument against withdrawing it is that the person that you're seeing now has not lost their identity just purely for lack of consciousness. You describe that the end of consciousness is not the end of the story for the patient, that there may be underlying layers, say the unconscious, which makes us who we are. Yeah, so we simply don't know what is going on for patients in these profound, prolonged disorders of consciousness. We tend to assume that what we are is what happens when we are conscious. But the whole premise of psychotherapy, of whatever type, is that probably the most important things about you, probably the things which rule you, are things which well up from well below the level of consciousness. It may be that consciousness, which we value so much, and which we see as the be-all and end-all, is actually something which inhibits us from being ourselves. Lots of writers would say that. Lots of artists would say that. Lots of our own experience would agree with that. So maybe if traumatic brain injury or a stroke or whatever inhibits consciousness, maybe what is being inhibited is that which prevents you from being your proper self. Maybe that patient lying on the hospital bed in a permanent vegetative state is having the time of their life. Maybe they are more truly themselves than they ever would have been. And that sort of speculation is concordant with what lots of analysts of hallucinogenic drug experience say about the brain as a constricting valve which stops the disrupting flow of impulses into the brain maybe if that valve is slackened off the patient will be having the time of their life in there we simply don't know so to look for the physiological correlates of consciousness in deciding on a patient's fate is perhaps a really superficial way of looking at the nature of human beings. 
just in terms of other patient might be having the time of their life, would that be implying some retention of consciousness? So it's basically a consciousness but unseen, because the way I I would understand it is if there were no consciousness, then there would be no thought and thus no capacity for having a time of your life. Well, perhaps we're using consciousness in conflicting ways here. So if by consciousness is understood uh, the sort of consciousness which you and I are experiencing now, then they don't have that. If my argument has any force, there must be some ability to experience something which normally happens below the horizon of consciousness, but which is pleasurable or an expression of wisdom or is an indication that the person is either still there or is more there than they were before. So, yes, appreciation, even if it's not appreciation through normal conscious sensation, is a prerequisite of this argument having any force. Where would, uh, say, dreaming come into this? Like, is dreaming a conscious act or would that also count as, like, an unseen conscious experience? Well, again, I, I don't think we should get too wound up in the semantics. Dreaming is, is something of which I am aware. Am I conscious of it? Can I be conscious of something which happens at a time when I am, by definition, unconscious? I don't know. But it may be, going back to what we were saying before, that um, a patient in a prolonged disorder of consciousness is in a dreamlike state exploring... Uh, wild and wonderful landscapes, uh, exploring themselves, experiencing relationship with other entities they meet in their dreams, as we all do in our normal nighttime dreams. So what happens below consciousness, as Freud and Jung said, is a very fecund time. All that we really know about patients in prolonged disorders of consciousness is that they don't um, act in the same way that we do, and they don't have neural physiological correlates of the same sort that we have. But they may be dancing with Jungian archetypes and feeling ecstatic as they do. I guess that's probably the point, though, is that essentially we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. And if life really is precious, then allowing someone to die on the basis of something about which we know absolutely nothing is arguably morally problematic. And just as far as the immutability argument goes, because I'm just wondering, the psychiatrist who comes along in this hypothetical and says, no, actually, it's not right to withdraw life-preserving treatment, where are they coming from in terms of the mutability argument? Because this is someone who is no longer in the state that they previously were. Mm. I I don't think that a psychiatrist who's an advocate for a patient in these circumstances should make a speech which involved immutability. It should be a speech which is based on the uncertainties which are inherent in the unconscious state. Um, we can say no more than, I've no idea what's going on here. And we need to wonder as a society what to do with those sorts of uncertainties. I guess the change in mind does come into play in terms of advanced decisions with regards to if I were to end up in a persistent disorder of consciousness, what would I want? And you've written before about how that is a 
a hard decision to then carry out because of its validity and yes. applicability. Exactly right. So if someone has said that if they find themselves in one of these prolonged disorders of consciousness, they don't want to live, then one might say, look, when they made that, they hadn't heard the discussion that we are having this morning. They might not know of the possibility that this might be the best time of their life. And can it, under those circumstances, you said that the advanced directive is valid and applicable. Now, I would anticipate a rough time in front of the court arguing that, but it seems to me to be philosophically reputable. That someone could not possibly have understood what the ramifications and what they could stand to lose in such a situation, but also that then we as clinicians can't know that this is what they meant. Exactly so. So it is a very common experience and well demonstrated in the literature that when people find themselves in the position anticipated by an advanced directive, a position which they feared most terribly, they very commonly find that that position is much more bearable than they imagined when they were healthy. And they don't want treatment to be withheld, for example. And it may be that if we could plumb the depths of the human psyche to know what's going on in these prolonged disorders of consciousness, we would be able to tell the patient, look, this is really something to look forward to. And under those circumstances, presumably they wouldn't have said, oh, I don't want the antibiotics, which are needed to keep me alive if I get a chest infection. So there are the glimmerings there of an argument that the advanced directive isn't valid and applicable. Do you think these decisions are driven by resources? So if we had blue sky thinking, infinite resources to indefinitely preserve life-sustaining treatment, would we be doing that? Um, I imagine we might. So, yes, the elephant in the room is always uh, resource allocation questions, isn't it? So, to put it brutally, um, are all my philosophical speculations about the nature of the unconscious state sufficient to mandate the keeping alive of patients when the keeping alive of patient A and a profoundly unconscious state necessarily means the death, because resources are finite, of lots of other patients. And that is a question which has to be debated at a, a policy level. This actually somewhat relates to something else that you raise. It's only quite briefly within the paper, but I think it's interesting to explore is whether the self is self-contained within the body or is it more distributed or expanded to others. And the resource allocation brings up, like, you know, if we try to keep this person alive, others may die in their place because the resources just only stretch so far. And yeah. and if we consider ourselves more linked in terms of being alive, then that could have ramifications. Like, that actually, it's not just this person's interests that we have to look at, for example. And then, and then the interest of the family as well also comes into it as, in terms of being a distributed self. Exactly right. So I am a convinced communitarian. So um, I think that the boundary of Charles Foster cannot be definitely delineated. I bleed into everybody, particularly, of course, into my family and my friends, uh, but also into wider society. 
if you want to say where I am, you can only say where I am by defining my position by triangulation from the other entities in my universe that are so important to my constitution. What am I? I can only answer that question in terms of the nexus of relationships of which I am a part. But there's perhaps another rather weirder angle on the distributed mind. And that's something which does call into question what we say about ourselves. So, for example, a little while ago, I dislocated my shoulder and I was taken to A&E and they gave me gas and air while they tried to put it back. And as I inhaled it, I, in inverted commas, seemed to rise out of my body and to hover over myself. And I looked down on my own body writhing and I looked down on the centre parting of the nurse who was trying to put the shoulder back. There was no doubt who the I was. The I wasn't located in the writhing body. The I was, was me. I could see my own head. And I therefore concluded from that experience that the I is something different from the brain, which normally I think of as generating my mind, as normally being the seat of my mind, as normally being synonymous with myself. If that's right, and minds are more than brains and are therefore not entirely contained within the skull boxes that we have, then that too has some fairly tectonic implications for the way that we view ourselves in relation to other presumably non-localised entities. Yeah, because it does strike me that throughout our lives, the meaningful way that we consider ourselves to be ourselves is due to being trapped within our own experiences and trapped within our own awareness, that when people consider that they will end in death why they don't see themselves as part of other people's experiences as well it's because we've always been limited to our own awareness whatever your theology there must be some comfort in the thought that even now quite a lot of me is situated in creatures other than Charles Foster and will presumably continue to be so situated after my biological death that also brings to mind, like, you bring, um, again, this idea of psychotherapy, psychoanalytic therapy, I suppose, of delving into the unconscious, but the treatment is directed towards this person, David, and who is David? Is the self-consciousness, and are we treating David's consciousness? So, so is the self limited to consciousness? Well, as we were discussing in the context of prolonged disorders of consciousness, and as is the presumption of all modalities of psychotherapy, the answer must be no. I, I can certainly testify that far and away the least interesting part of me is my conscious bits. And I think that the least interesting part of my friends is their consciousness. When their consciousness is altered by the red wine that we give them at dinner... I see an awful lot more of them, and they are much more colourful and much more themselves. In vino veritas seems to be a principle of general psychological application. So what does that mean for your clinical practice? It might mean that you're 
far less ambitious than you should be in trying to put right just the least significant parts of your patients, namely their conscious bits. So maybe, maybe that means that psychotherapists should rule the psychiatric world and you should, as psychiatrists, play very much second fiddle to them. I mean, you've also written in a previous paper that consciousness is like a conduit to how our identity, whatever nebulous that is, but how our identity manifests in being and behavior through consciousness, but that that might not be the only conduit to being who we are. And the longer I live, the more I suspect that it is a relatively insignificant conduit. It, certainly it is a conduit, but there are there are more important channels, I suspect. And as far as it applies to us clinicians, the other question that was raised was, do we require a patient to be conscious to be a patient or to have some chance of becoming conscious again to be a patient? And I just wonder how that gets back to the best interest discussion, because would you not at least require consciousness to assume interests? Well, you need consciousness to assume the interests which are identified by that consciousness. (laughs) But if that consciousness isn't the full story about a person, then simply addressing your therapy to the concerns identified by the consciousness is not going to amount to holistic treatment. I'm really conscious in this discussion that all these things are very easy for me to say. And I'm conscious that I might be heard as I really am not saying that lots of mental illness is wonderful. I don't romanticise mental illness. I know that there is an awful lot of genuine pain. Faced with genuine psychiatric pain, what do you do as clinicians? Isn't the kind thing to take it away, to make life bearable, to make it possible for the patient to get out of bed in the morning without any of these ludicrous philosophical speculations that I'm indulging in here? And of course, the answer to that must be yes. But the fact that the answer is yes shouldn't obscure the fact that there's more to life than pain and there's more to us than what simply floats on the surface of our consciousness. What that comes to in terms of what you should be doing in the context of your clinics is is your business, not mine. (laughs) Um, I'm certain that most of the psychotherapy that we all need is best done by our families and our friends rather than by professional psychotherapists. So perhaps all I'm saying is that, yes, take away the pain, but when you've taken away the pain, say to the patient, look, you are a bigger story than the one which I've had to assume in taking away your pain. Go away and explore the far greater hinterland, which probably contains the things which are more authentically you. There's two other case studies that you bring up more briefly, and I just want to bring up this dementia case study, because I think this gets to the what are we trying to do question, actually. But dementia is a psychiatric illness, well, Alzheimer's certainly is a psychiatric illness, which is unrelenting and progressively worsens, just 
regardless of what treatment we give and ends in death be it over 10 years or less so our aim in dementia treatment definitionally cannot be to bring someone to their right mind because it doesn't go in that direction you know presuming there is a right mind of course and perhaps a dementia clinician would say that they are trying to alleviate suffering and retain normalcy of day-to-day functioning but uh, i wonder how that plays also into this idea of you know life is about more than pain for example what what are we trying to do with patients with uncurable illnesses yeah um perhaps all you can do is to say that the best model of a human being is not an atomistic billiard ball as is usually assumed by philosophers and clinicians alike but a story and a story has a beginning and a middle and an end so perhaps the dementia clinician should be trying to ensure that the story is as good as it can possibly be now what will a good story be good stories probably have ideally less pain in them but also they are stories which have some sort of consistency have some sort of theme so the facilitation of the defining relationships of a life will be an important part of the dementia clinician's job one corollary of that may be that you don't treat dementia patients in the usual arid clinical settings where they're often treated so if one looks for instance at dementia patients own ratings of their life satisfaction and the bearability of their condition a large proportion say they're happy with their lot if they're cared for at home a much lower proportion if they are looked after in a care home why is that it's not because the carers in the care home are horrible to them or because they don't like the food it's because human beings are relationships and the constitutive relationships are ones with which we have always lived so facilitation of the notion of human beings as coherent stories insofar as is clinically possible will be an important part of it but an important part of it as well will be an acknowledgement that a lot of this is not clinical business Mm. This is familial business. This is societal business. Now, the reason for bringing up the dementia case, obviously, was, again, another discussion of two different selves in this time in terms of deciding for your future self who wouldn't be you. In the case of dementia, this person who makes an advanced decision to not have life-saving treatment didn't anticipate that they would be happy when they had dementia. But again, it just brings up this whole account of two different selves with no real continuity, one self deciding for a different self. And then it's brought up very acutely in this hypothetical of dissociative identity disorder with a Jekyll and Hyde scenario in so much as, let's say, that dissociative identity disorder presents in a very acute way of two completely different selves existing inside one body and they switch Let's say that that's a condition that exists and... I know there's dispute about that. Yeah. But, but hypothetically, if it were to exist, then the idea being that if you were to treat it, you would be killing a self. Yeah. So 
I have the luxury, of course, of simply asking questions <laughs> and, and pointing out rather smugly that nobody knows the answer to these questions. And that, I don't know the answer to these questions either. But if one concludes that Jekyll and Hyde are entities as solid and as real as one another, and Hyde goes out every night and kills someone, and then Jekyll comes to you as the psychiatrist and says, um, please, I don't want to spend my life in jail for what Hyde has done. Please pharmacologically assassinate Hyde. Mm. What should you do? If you are capable of using drugs to kill an entity which is as solid as a real person, the fact that that entity, Hyde, might be a murderer isn't a moral excuse. I don't know what the answer is. I suspect that an answer would have to start from the premise that societal considerations trump personal ones. And it is not in society's best interests to have Hyde wandering the streets killing people, nor, but less importantly, is it in Jekyll's best interests to live in a body which also happens to contain Hyde. But that's problematic. If that reasoning is right, then you have an argument for the execution of murderers, which is something which most of us would disagree with. I'm not offering any suggestions. I'm merely trying to make your consultations more difficult than they already are. <laughs> and that still leaves us with the problem of what if Hyde wasn't a murderer? What if it was just, please leave me with just one identity because two identities is difficult to live with. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and on the face of it, that raises the question, like say someone had 10 identities, which they flip between, that it's presumably okay to eliminate nine of them, but it's just not okay to eliminate the final one. We can make the point less dramatically by talking about something less salient than identity, just attributes. So my son, Tom, when he was seven, had problems with reading and writing, and we took him along to an educational psychologist, and he was diagnosed as having dyslexia. And it was said by various people that they could, quote, cure him of his dyslexia, by which they meant that they would make him neurotypical. They would enable him to read and write, but they also meant something more than that. They meant that they would turn him into creature who, like me, sees the world in a boringly nerdish linguistic way. Someone who reduces a tree when he sees it to a set of linguistic propositions about trees, instead of, as Tom does, see uh, a holistic view of trees, uh, a, a much more epistemologically accurate view of trees, a view which accords much better, I imagine, although I've never seen a tree myself, um, with what trees are really like. Now, if he could be cured of his dyslexia, which mercifully he can't, would I want him to be cured? Of course I wouldn't. It would stop him being Tom. Tom would be assassinated by the treatment, and we would have to have some sort of metaphorical funeral for him and some sort of metaphorical baptism of the new creature that had risen out of the ashes of Tom. It would be a horrible thing to do. And I suspect that lots of the, the interventions, whether they are pharmacological or whether they are 
various types of education are directed at ablating life-affirming characteristics in the name of some unarticulated presumption about the way that human beings should be. In the case of dyslexia, human beings are quintessentially linguistic creatures, and if you're not a linguistic creature, you are somehow suboptimal. And this is seen not just in these hypothetical treatments to change who people are, but in disease states as well, like how people experience a death before a death with severe dementia, where their relative may change an identity to a point where they're unrecognisable to who they previously knew. And it feels as though that person is now gone through the change of identity. You see that raises the same issues. Is there a value or a, a goal or, or an ideal to remaining who you are? I can't answer that question without sounding really trite and smug. Um, so remaining what you are is remaining consistent with the story which you have told about yourself up until that point, but recognising that the things that happen to you by way of organic or traumatic changes may be an exhilarating part of the story. So if the nasty effects of the dementia can't be mitigated, then one should see the demented state as insofar as you can part of the story um part of the authentic self which has been handed to you by the fates or whatever and as i say that i'm conscious not only that it sounds smug and trite but that it also sounds completely incoherent but as i said um i have the luxury of asking questions and not answering them so over to you <laughs> Well, if I can just return with my final question, it's just one I wonder about how it applies to forensic settings. If we speculate that the person that we're speaking to at the time is their current self and not necessarily their previous self, how that would apply if the current self, say, with a frontal lobe brain tumour, which makes them engage in criminal activity, I think the way we might deal with that is to say, well, this is not what they would have done had they not had the frontal brain tumour. This is not the previous self's actions. But if we consider that actually you are now your new self, what is their responsibility for their actions? Yeah. So the law addresses this in um, some fairly broad brush ways by reducing murder to diminish responsibility in some cases or making insanity a defense perhaps the issue is more acutely raised not by the example you gave but by the simpler example of intoxication so let's say a gentle teetotaler goes out and entirely out of character drinks a bottle of whiskey he comes back and stabs his wife to death in his alcoholic delirium he wakes up in the morning and is absolutely horrified the expert evidence is that he will never do this again clearly society needs some sort of pound of flesh for 
what that teetotaler has done. Mm. But what is the appropriate sort of response? Who is the person who is being locked up if that person goes to prison? Is it really the person who did the crime? Namely, a person, the drunk person, who had, as a result of the bottle of whiskey, a biochemistry which caused the death of the wife much more obviously, than the person themselves caused the death of the wife. Should you lock away a body which is only historically connected with the body that contained the homicidal biochemistry? (laughs) These are, sorry to return to the same way of putting it, but these are policy questions which have to be decided by society and not by individual thinkers. So this is a question about the nature of the social contract that we have. What should we be expected to give up in terms of freedoms in order to live in a society which has the ability to punish? So this is the whole of political philosophy that you're asking me about. Well, I'd like to... Thank you for speaking to me. It's incredibly far too broad a subject to cover in an hour. And so I do feel like I've done it a disservice, but it's very interesting to hear these points of view. And obviously people who want to read more should check out the article in the BJ Psych International entitled, Who Are You Today? Problems of Identity in Psychiatry. I've enjoyed our conversation very much and you made me think about lots of things that I haven't thought about before. So thank you very much. Sachin, this is the kind of stuff I love, really. You know, I have an interest in neuropsychiatry and especially dementia. I've done previous research on Lewy body dementia and just the thought that a pathological process can change or fundamentally change who we are, change how we interact with those around us and interact with society and experience life and just the thought that this can be in some conditions reversible but more often than not irreversible that kind of stuff i find quite fascinating and really quite compelling to see discussed in this way yeah let's talk about it i did find it quite nice how professor foster does mention the importance of community-based and social interventions and not necessarily treatments or, or remedies but just interaction-based social methods of helping individuals with dementia and how many individuals with dementia really benefit from being in the home environment and also and not just in terms of dementia but also the point that most individuals would benefit from psychotherapy so to speak from their friends and family and the importance of involvement with the community and not over-reliance on a clinical model with regards to people's mental health and Really, I agree, and I think many, many psychiatrists agree with that statement. I agree. Yeah. I think I agree up until a certain point, which is when someone is profoundly, acutely unwell with, say, an acute psychosis in which they pose a risk of not all individuals with psychosis would necessarily pose risk to other individuals, of course. But, say, if someone did have an acute psychosis and on assessment was found to potentially pose a risk to themselves or other people, that'd be more difficult, not necessarily impossible, but more difficult for family members and friends to 
help with. Again, it's never a blanket statement for all cases, but the ideal is people having, if they do have access to friends and family members and community members who are able to help them, and they're not so profoundly unwell that that would be unsafe for them and others, then yes, surely that's the right way to go forward. First of all, Hami, you mentioned, you know, there's a threshold for which medical services are most needed. But I'd also add that if the patient wants medical services, then you have to respect that too, you know, regardless of severity. But I don't want to put words in his mouth. So I'll tell you the sense I got. Okay. If I were to buy everything that is sold in this, which is that I would push if I were the author of this article for person-centered care, which I do anyway. Mm. Certainly, I think if you want to phrase it as I have a billion pounds to invest into mental health, that it might not all be wisely spent in acute clinical services, but perhaps within community services, but also within social infrastructure to enable, for example... This would cost more than a billion pounds now that I say it, but to enable families to stay together, to enable people to have more time at home, to give people more social activities to do in the community, to foster community adhesion. These sorts of things can enable a different type of therapy and actually might ultimately reduce the need for acute clinical services in the first place. And also might respect the story of the person. And that's not just the person with dementia whose story might be well continued at home. It could be anyone with a mental illness whose story is disrupted by having to engage with clinical services or be admitted to hospital. And if you add to that the whole idea of maybe it's psychotherapists who should be dealing with these patients rather than psychiatrists, as Professor Foster said. That there's maybe a general vibe here of psychiatrists need to take a step back. Not as a broad brush statement, and obviously cases vary, but maybe we need to take a step back and there are other aspects to a person's care which are more important. Absolutely. Public mental well-being investment in social infrastructure and social care is surely the best prophylaxis for mental illness that anyone can provide. If you look at risk factors for many different forms of mental illness, often social deprivation and many social factors do weigh in heavily. On a bigger scale, and I'll confess to being relatively new to the game, I'm, I'm young. You have to keep reminding me of that, huh? <laughs> but I'm often told, and it's often mentioned, that the number of psychiatric inpatient beds in this country has dropped drastically in past decades. And from my understanding, there can be great difficulty in finding available beds for individuals who are acutely mentally unwell. Does that suggest that, in fact... The decision has already been made and is in fact already underway in allowing psychiatry to, as it were, step back, still be present and provide clinical care for individuals who need it, but 
one would hope is this money instead being invested in improving public well-being and social infrastructure and one well, would hope that wouldn't they <laughs> one would hope one lives in hope hope springs eternal anyway let's uh let's leave it at that i did like it later on when you were asking questions which were a bit tricky to answer and professor foster said you know you kind of didn't want to get into the semantics of it i appreciate that and i even felt that when i was asking like why am i particularly wondering what is specifically thought to be going on in the head of someone who has persistent vegetative state because as you said the main point is we don't know yeah but i think it is useful to conceptualize what we are talking about when we say there is something still going on like what are we imagining is this life of value for this person and that's why i brought up dreams and you know dreams i don't think was even a good example for me to bring up because you are conscious of dreams you know sometimes you wake up and you remember what you dreamt about but that's like the easiest way for me to think of it is okay mm. this person is unconscious persistently and they're not having any meaningful conscious thought that we're aware of and they're certainly not engaging with the external environment in a cognitive way so what are we picturing that they're doing and i think the easiest analogy we can draw or the easiest thing we can imagine for someone to still have activity going on is dreams like are they still living a life in their head and that's what he described when i asked that you know that maybe within their mind they are still exploring environments and engaging with people in their own mind. I guess if we're talking about dreams, I can't help but use the one cinematic example of Inception, where Leonardo DiCaprio literally creates worlds and lives a whole lifetime with his partner. I mean, you know, it's, it's slightly different, but just people have incredibly vivid experiences in dreams. You know, we don't fully understand what vegetative state is. We don't fully understand what dreams are how they work how they're experienced but the idea that someone could whilst lacking any outward awareness because they're still going through and correct me if i'm wrong sachin but people in a vegetative state they can and do go through sleep wake cycles uh, it's just that they don't have this awareness so the thought that they could be continuing to have dreams you know even if there's no full awareness is there some quality of life quality of experience there in the way that dreams can be pleasant they can be unpleasant there's so many unknowns but it is interesting to think that there could be a whole internal reality for these people that we'll never know well so this is the thing for me like if we did find out that these people are dreaming then that's case closed for me that means that they are having some sort of experience of life that must continue to me you know i'm not a lawyer and i'm not a philosopher that just seems right to me that for me even if i was trapped in a state of persistent dreaming i would not want that to end mm. but you know what we're stuck with is we don't know if that's going on so now the question is what do we want to do in a situation where we don't know what's going on and that's like i think that's what we think we're looking at or at least that's what is really being described because we take dreams off the table again i think dreams is a conscious experience i think the question is is the unconscious experience 
mm. that we can't even begin to describe what it is mm. because it's not conscious. Is that worth continuing? It's a big question, isn't it? And I agree with you, Sachin, in that I personally, if I was still capable of dreaming, you know, as someone who often enjoys recounting my dreams and keeping a log of them, I would want to be kept alive. But again, maybe that's not fair in terms of equal allocation of resources. If we look at the concept of justice in medical ethics, which I appreciate is maybe <laughs> babies' medical ethics, you know, um, the pillars of autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice, from my medical school level ethics, justice is the idea of equal allocation of resources or allocation of resources that is just and fair. And if my being kept alive prevents proper care being provided for individuals who may have a reversible condition, is that fair? It's difficult to say, it's difficult to know. But it's interesting, and I don't want to focus too much on dreams, but dreams are something that more often than not from what I understand, most dreams aren't remembered or recalled. We have many dreams and we only remember a minority. So if we don't remember something, it's like a kind of a gap, uh, almost a black hole. And it's really interesting. It makes me think of this gentleman, British musicologist called Clive Wearing, who is often mentioned in neuropsychiatry lectures because of his condition where he has chronic anterograde and retrograde amnesia. So he lacks the ability to form new memories and can't recall aspects of his past memories. But this gentleman, he is such a talented musician that he can play an entire piano piece from start to finish. And yet, if you read his diary, he keeps a diary, a log, and it is endless, endless repetitions of, I have just woken up. I am just waking up. As if he's constantly in the process of just regaining consciousness no semblance of life continuity yeah existentially that's a terrifying existence but it does bring in the question what is consciousness is there because it's hard to divorce memory from consciousness and i think in the article by professor charles foster he does cover dementia example and i think dementia is probably the most common condition that people encounter where memory falters and perhaps entirely changes and challenges our concept of a person of who they were not just who they were in terms of personality and behavior but it reaches a point where it challenges the very concept of their personhood in and of itself and we can talk about what it's like as a clinician what it's like as an observer as a family member but one truly does wonder what it must feel like as the individual who is going through this experience losing your personhood and there is an album i need to send you sachin it's a, a bit bleak a bit depressing the entire point of the album it's a concept album it's three hours long where the tracks are supposed to represent one's deterioration through dementia at the start the music is kind of classic 50s music warm with a slightly aged gramophone quality but every now and then it will skip a bit or it will restart at the start of a passage but gradually the music makes less and less sense and becomes more and more distressing. And in fact, at a point almost ceases to be music and kind of becomes distressing sounds or muffled distressing sounds. Like fragmentation. Exactly. Yeah, it, it wasn't a very pleasant experience listening to it, but it did send a chill down my spine and really made me think, gosh, 
what an experience to have. What is this album for people listening? The album is Everywhere at the End of Time. And it's the 11th record by The Caretaker, an alias of musician Leyland Kirby. It's actually a collection of six albums, uh, my apologies, released from 2016 to 2019, which depicts the stages of dementia. The first three albums consist of big band records. The fourth and fifth are sound collages of them. And stage six represents drones with an organ in the last track. And in the end, the choir plays, and this is supposed to represent the phenomenon of terminal lucidity, where it seems almost towards the end, individuals with dementia kind of regain this lucidity that wasn't seen in weeks prior. And then the entire last minute is just a minute of silence representing the death of the individual with dementia. We've gone off on a massive tangent here, Sachin. That does sound fascinating, and I do think that dementia is one of the key examples we have as to memory being so crucial to our personhood and to ourselves. Mm. Just from the very core aspect of it provides the continuity of who we are. Just like your musician who writes the diary entry every day, our semblance of being the same people we were when we were children, teenagers, young adults, and now you're still a young adult, I mean, uh, is related to our continuity of memory throughout these stages. And we know that memory is fallible. We know that it's very easy to warp and alter. So in a sense, it's almost like an illusion, isn't it? Obviously, there's truth in memory. But the thought that we are the same person who we were growing up. Yeah, there is a string, however much we can rely on it or not. <laughs> that says that we are who we are and mm. who we used to be that helps us track through time basically but i want to get back to your comment about justice being involved in this that you know you'd want to be kept alive if resources allowed and you know this was something that professor foster mentioned that ultimately these decisions that we make are probably resource driven and that, as I like to call it, blue sky thinking, if we had infinite resources, yes, we would keep everyone alive that we could keep alive. That's the thing, isn't it? I'm certain there was at least a documentary or a news piece on facilities in America where the sole purpose is to provide care for individuals, not just individuals in persistent vegetative state, but more commonly individuals in a coma, which seems to be a permanent coma, where family members and medical insurance pay for the continued care of these individuals who are unlikely to regain consciousness. But at the same time, it's not just about resources, is it? We do have to think about the best interests of the individual, what they would have wanted, advanced directives, and there's no clear wrong well, or right answer, is there? What, what they would have wanted, you know, this is again something that got brought up by this whole concept of self, may not be valid for who you're dealing with now. That's right. Yeah, that, that is right. <laughs> Pro Professor Foster did say that. Yeah. And that's the whole point, is that we don't know. And, you know, this whole concept of privately paying to keep someone alive is again a justice issue because not everyone can do that. And then we get into a situation of some people can keep themselves alive. And I think the question is, do we as a society want to keep everyone alive? 
as a justice issue. But the reason I bring this up, especially as a resource thing, is I feel it's a cop-out, you know, to say, well, pragmatically, we can't do it. Like, let's think of it in terms of blue sky. I mean, let's just say we would if we could. And yes, there are situations that people might make decisions where they don't want that to happen. An argument to do with resources that came up, which isn't about limitation of resources, but it is about the distribution of self, which I thought was interesting, which is that perhaps if we aren't just limited to our single selves or, you know, ourselves aren't trapped within our bodies and our skulls, that then it becomes a question, you know, not of like, oh, can we afford to keep this person alive? Do we have the resources? But, you know, is it right? Is it right to have other people die for your sake when ultimately as a distributed self, you're not necessarily ending when you die. <laughs> like, it, as in as in that prospect of not only being yourself, then changes the question, right? Of do we continue this person? Because if you're not just you, if everyone is a collective self, then presumably you know, as much as your subjective experience would end and it would feel bad, you can feel some comfort that aspects of you will continue on. Well, Sachin, it almost sounds spiritual, doesn't it? And at the same time, it almost sounds sociological, like the concept of memes. And I don't mean internet memes. I mean, ideas that we pass on, behaviours that we pass on, as we influence other people around us, if we raise our own children, they may inherit certain behaviors from us and the argument i guess could be made and i don't know if this is what you're getting at sachin that you live on through their behaviors and also their memory of you is that what you're saying i mean that is one aspect right like in terms of if we're all a society as we like to make fun <laughs> of that phrase we do live in a society we do live in a society there is that aspect i think also this is something that has riddled me, and it's, it's a question that I have never been able to firmly articulate. <laughs> if a tree falls in a forest and no one is there to hear it... No, no, no. Sorry, no. go on. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's something I've not been able to firmly articulate, um, and so I won't firmly articulate it now. But it's like it's a material thing as well, which is I'm made up of the same material that you're made up of, and everyone is made up of, and yet somehow there is a distinction between myself and yourself. And I've always just like had this weird niggling feeling and it will sound like, it will sound so obvious when I ask this, like obviously it could have been no other way. Why, why are you even asking this? But I always think, firstly, like why am I me? Why have I always been me? Like my entire experience has been trapped within this skull and it hasn't been anyone else. Or, as a hypothetical, if my parents gave birth to a baby at some other time, like maybe a week later, would it be my consciousness still? Like, would I be sitting around here now doing this or anywhere? Like, this brain has developed and there's a seat of consciousness within it and somehow it's me. <laughs> and there's a brain in you and it, somehow it's not me. And I don't know what is going on there. 
the only thing that would sort of like satisfy me on this and does comfort me somewhat is no actually it's a distributed self and the reason it comforts me is that you know i do have death anxiety i do sort of feel like there's a lot i don't want to miss out on in the future of this universe but even if i go or even if this brain goes the distributed self continues and someone will experience it it doesn't make sense but it's also just something that sort of niggles at me no it, it makes sense and i think i think it's something that keeps a lot of people up at night it's not just about death but really in a large part it is what is there after we cease to experience so that could be physical death or that could be when one enters a permanent vegetative state or a permanent coma what is there after that and it's natural to have these thoughts and feelings i think with regards to the whole consciousness if you were born five minutes later or earlier would there be a difference i feel like that kind of does make me think of the whole idea of being a ghost in the shell if we think of the consciousness and it depends how you view consciousness different people look at it in different ways but professor foster was saying often when psychiatrists talk about the mind or when the mind is being spoken about in general you could substitute the word soul and it seems like it would make sense mm-hmm. um and really we don't have answers we have loads of questions <laughs> see now the way i could describe this thing that niggles at me is a lot easier to imagine if i say if i was born five minutes later would my ghost which currently is in my shell still have gone into that body right that's the way to think of it but the way i most materially think of it is five minutes later a brain develops obviously a consciousness emerges would that experience be mine or would what i am right now never have existed and some other consciousness would have developed and it's hard for me to sort of conceive you know i think the question would be more maybe i'm i'm too boring and (laughs) too pragmatic and so i like to think you know everything we perceive and experience is due to the collection of neurons within our body throughout the nervous system and primarily the brain that's what i think Um, yeah Uh, not to say you don't think that so it kind of being born five minutes later or earlier as long as it's the same initial embryo i suppose um (laughs) it would still be you i would say maybe philosophically like that's not right but just like you know that like simply biologically yes but i think my question would be oh but what about if it was a different combination of spermatocyte with an egg cell would that be me at all well probably not right but the way people talk about it culturally it's just interesting the thought that everything we are and everything we experience is due to an amazing combination of many people believe it's due to and i believe it's due to an amazing combination of coincidences combination of events that we can't ever truly understand oh sure but it's also completely certain to happen isn't it and this is why i said oh you'll just say well sachin it couldn't have happened any other way someone (laughs) deterministic (laughs) well well, i mean you know like like 
the odds of me being born are actually 100%. Like, you know, because it happened. And it had to be me. It had to be my consciousness. So I can never think what if. I can never think what if it happened slightly differently because this is what happened. You know, it's very annoying. <laughs> Boy, we went off on a tangent. Yeah, no, I, I think that this is what happens when clinicians have time to ponder these kind of questions. It's not very productive. It's entertaining. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad I'm saying these nonsensical things to you and not to... <laughs> to Charles Foster, <laughs> who might entertain me with a smarter answer than I deserve. <laughs> he obviously has a lot of experience with discussing these kind of matters, and I think we're just dipping our toes into something that we rarely ponder or rarely discuss. Honestly, Professor Foster's article was one of those articles that, just reading it, it just made me think so much and when you sent me the interview and I was listening to it, my partner Yasmin was listening at the same time and it was just one of those things that you have to talk about. You have to find out other people's stance on it because these kind of questions and these kind of challenges to so the way we view fundamental concepts such as identity and personhood they're universal experiences. Everyone has an opinion. Everyone has something to contribute in discussion. And I think everyone has the opportunity to learn and ponder new things. I know I certainly have. Same. <laughs> I, I don't want to add any more, actually. I think that's... I might have gone into just his idea of what are we trying to do with patients? And maybe it all boils down to helping them fulfill their story, which is... A nice way of thinking about it. Well, isn't there the whole movement of narrative-based psychiatry, narrative-based psychology, where, I mean, it's slightly different, but, you know, the power of a story, the power of hearing other people's stories and how they relate to your own, the power of fictional stories, which you may find some common ground with. I do think it was interesting when Professor Foster talked about how... Of course, alleviating and relieving pain and suffering is very important and really essential, though pain is part of a person's story. I think when someone's able to verbalize and say what they want and what they would like, that makes things a lot easier. Individuals with dementia, they're not able to, well, many aren't able to verbalize regarding their suffering and pain, but they still experience it. There's a big difference between reading and listening to someone else's story and experiencing the story yourself. And what might make a story more rich from the perspective of a bystander or a family member or a clinician might not be something that someone is willing to put up with and experience in their own story, in their own life. And I think it's important to distinguish between the two. Yeah, that's the difficulty, I think, is... Well, it's also the ideal is when we're talking about helping someone fulfill their own story that requires an understanding of what their story is and it's their story not yours so that gets into this entire thing of what that self wanted and yeah. and what they want now and honoring whose story at that point when we start thinking of things in terms of stories even those sort of questions come up so 
yeah thanks for giving us lots of things to think about <laughs> yeah thank you professor foster sorry if we were unfathomable <laughs> in <laughs> our discussion but uh that's how our brains are feeling at the moment mm, very very fried well the article is called if if you want to tie your brain into further knots you can check out who are you today? Problems of identity in psychiatry by Professor Charles Foster in the BJ Psych International Journal. Thank you for listening. At the beginning of this podcast, I was Sachin Shah, and I believe I still am. And let me double check. Yes, I believe I've been hammy. And we'll see you next time. Or... Someone with our names will see you next time. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych International podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online. <laughs>